Good evening or afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Mic Drop, episode 12. Can a Liz Cheney candidacy, an independent candidacy, stop Donald Trump? Um, lots of discussion about this. When I announced the title, I immediately got a bunch of calls from uh, my old data team at the Lincoln Project who wanted to kind of walk through some of the numbers. There was some pretty heated debate, and I'm going to go through all of the arguments. I've been saying for the last couple of days that a Cheney candidacy was probably a good idea. I remain committed to that, at least at this moment in time, and I'm going to explain why. I am seeing some of the numbers a little bit, hedging perhaps just a bit, but I still think the environment and the conditions for a Cheney candidacy could be probably the best tactical method of stopping Donald Trump if he were to run and get through the primary. Long way to go before we get to all of that, and I'll probably get into that in just a bit. But let me first say thank you again for joining me here on Colin. This Mic Drop podcast is designed to allow for greater engagement. My hope is to get questions from all of you, or at least some written questions in the chat. I've got a lot of really good regulars who kind of move the discussion along, and that's really, really helpful, especially when I start chiming on a little bit too long. I think you guys do a good job of reining me in and um, giving me a little bit more sense and focus on what it is that you guys want to be hearing about. Midterms are getting close, guys, um, and so there's going to be a lot of items on the agenda. As regulars to mic drop know, uh, we, we kind of we're, we take all comers. If you've got questions related to anything, go ahead and jump into the queue ask those questions. They don't have to be related to the topic. Um, but if it does get a little bit too far, too squirrely, um, for you OG listeners, you'll, you'll appreciate that pun or at least that reference. If it does get a little bit too squirrely, I'll bring it back into line and we'll get back to Liz Cheney and what this means for Never Trump Lane uh, in the process. A good thing that uh, um, you all can do for me, a helpful thing I should say, is the ability to invite other people to the show uh, on Twitter. The application is there. I think it gives you that option. If you could let people know about the discussion, it would really be helpful to me. It drives uh, kind of the algorithm up in a way that allows um, for more exposure. The more exposure we get, the broader range of discussions. And hopefully, um, even though October's looking a little bit crazy, folks, and September's already filling up as well, uh, maybe we'll do this a little bit more frequently. Again, maybe we'll do shorter episodes, but more frequently because the news is going to start coming out every day. I think you guys have seen me pushing out a lot more polling data that's coming out. Um, the polling is starting to uh, show that movement that I've been talking about that we've been waiting for since January. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about what that means because I think it does speak a little bit to what's happening and what happened in Wyoming last night and what that's going to mean going forward. So, Without any further ado, let me first talk a little bit about what the opposition uh, uh, to this concept, to this idea is saying about it, okay? And you hear this a lot from from the, the typical prognosticators. And look, I don't mean to be a hater on the prognosticators. They do play a really important role. But it's important to understand that just like a professional football game or a professional baseball game, most of the color commentators, most of the analysts – have never either played the game or they've or they've never uh, managed a team. These are people who, um, again, no no slights, but offer a lot of data and analytically driven um, perspectives. Some of it is extremely helpful. Some of it I rely on. Um, but what I will say is this: most of the data guys in politics are wrong. I'm not too sure if that's true in sport 
sports uh, because most sports data and analytics is actually a lot better than what we have in politics um, for reasons that I'll do another episode on. Um, I'm a huge fan of baseball analytics. I think most of you guys know that. I'm a huge fan of sabermetrics being deciding uh, factors in how baseball uh, – and baseball is the king of them all, by the way. Baseball is the best data-driven sport out there. So if you're a numbers freak, if you love data – um, baseball is where it's at, and the people in baseball are actually, I think, far, far better data scientists and appliers of data uh, than most political pundits. Nate Silver, of course, is uh, you know his passion is is doing sports data and sports analytics. Um, that's where he started. Uh, he kind of returns there again. But Nate Silver, again, I don't mean to be a hater on Nate, but Nate's not right that often. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. He let me say he's wrong a lot. Okay. Uh, most of the analysis that was coming out was from David Wasserman in the Cook Report. Wasserman was one of the people that was really critical of the f- efficacy of the ads that we were doing with the Lincoln Project because – and this is why it's important to understand and listen to practitioners over data analysts. He had never run a campaign before. He had no idea what we were doing. He takes a really linear bipolar look, a right, left, red, blue look at what we were doing and started to saying that the ads that we were running were having no effect, obviously wrong, proved them wrong, right? That I was saying for eight months out, the Bannon line number is what we're shooting for. This is what's achievable. That's all we need. We surpass the Bannon line in Georgia. We surpass it in Arizona. We surpass it in Wisconsin. Lock up 270. Thank you, ma'am. We're heading out. We'll see in four more years if Trump runs and we'll kick his ass again using largely the same methodology. Okay, Wasserman was wrong. The Cook Report was 0 for 22. They, 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 they predicted every one of the House, competitive House races, wrong in 2020. 0 for 22. Now, I've gotten my ass kicked a lot in politics. I've had some really bad election nights. Not recently. Actually, the California primary back in June, my firm for the first time went 19 for 20. We almost had a perfect night. That's never happened. It's a rarity, especially for a medium-large-sized firm. But what I will say is I have never lost every single race that I've been involved in. I've never even heard of that. And that's where the Cook Report was at. And so, like I said, I, I do respect Dave. I think he, he um, doesn't understand campaigns the way that he should in making the predictions that he does or the analysis that he does. I think he's probably very brilliant. I would argue maybe even borderline genius in understanding the districts that he does from a numbers perspective. But lacking the actual ability to, to dig deep and rely on experience as a campaign professional has clearly hindered the ability of groups like uh, the Cook Report or even the Crystal Ball or some of these prediction, predictive organizations um, to, to actually determine who's going to win. If you, if you do follow Data Science Twitter, it's a lot of, a lot of academic um, stuff. Some of it is very, very interesting most of it is is just dead wrong on the predictions that they make. Okay, most of it is just is just wrong. It's it's fascinating post game analysis. It's not really good uh, or great as anyway as a as a as a um, predictive tool. So with that, with with me kind of you know throwing water on everybody else's work, uh, I'm going to rely on mine, and 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 I'm hoping that that's why a lot of you guys came uh, to ask questions and get a sense of that. I'm seeing Lucas from my data team here, one of, one of my um, biggest critics uh, of the uh, argument that I'm going to make tonight. Lucas, you don't have to, but if you want to, you can jump into the chat. And I know that you're a huge Wasserman fan, so no disrespect. Um, but 
Um, let me let me first outline the argument, at least as I see it, against why Liz Cheney should run. The idea is that when you're talking in a very stratified, polarized environment, which we are absolutely in, folks, the idea that these small sliver of movements of voters going one way or the other are very difficult to find. And when you do, concentrating and focusing on them are really, really important to effectuate the outcomes of these races. Okay? You're starting to see the Democrats open up big gaps in Pennsylvania right now. Fetterman is just crushing Oz. Um, you're seeing it happening even in Wisconsin right now. And I'm not saying that's a huge gap, but Barnes, uh, Mandela Barnes is, is absolutely got the momentum. Independents are absolutely shifting in that direction. Herschel Walker um, has hit a, a ceiling. Uh, the Arizona race isn't, isn't in a place where I'm comfortable at right now, but I believe that the, the trend line will work towards the Democrats. But I do believe I do believe these races are a little bit closer than the than the generics are telling us right now. Okay, and that's just that's just straight history talking. That's just straight experience and kind of where I've been at in, in always believing, even in the Lincoln Project in the waning days, we were telling people, folks, this is a closer race than we think. It's it's just thirty years of doing this. Races in the end tend to close. The polling gaps tend to close. Um, as voters make their minds up in the last 72 hours and the final decisions are being made. But anyway, back to the point. We're in a very highly stratified environment. Swing voters, movable voters, that movement I keep saying we're looking for is very hard to find. When you do find them, remember that elections are, are you know, zero sum. If, you, if, if Trump has one vote and you take that vote away and he votes for Biden, it's a two-vote swing. It's a negative one on Donald Trump's ledger, and it's a plus one on Biden's ledger. Okay, and that's a really important distinction. And this was actually a big strategic consideration that we had to make when we were doing this work on the Lincoln Project because if strategically we had to make a decision. Do we want to actually push Republican voters to vote for a Democrat when they've probably never done that in their entire life before or simply say it's okay to sit it out? In other words, don't vote at the top of the ticket. What that don't vote strategy is, just a straight no on Trump is, and what that does is it takes one vote out of Trump's ledger. Doesn't add any to Biden, right? But it, it brings Trump's votes total down. If you convince him to vote for Biden, you add one to Biden's side of the ledger, and you get a two-point swing. Minus one for Trump, plus one for Biden. The basic argument against a Cheney candidacy is you lose that two-point movement. You lose, you may get the negative one or one moving, to that Republican moving off of Trump, but towards a Cheney, and you don't get that Dem vote plus one in that column, okay? I don't think that there's much of a valid argument. I'm not going to spend too much time on the premise that there are conservative Democrats that would vote for Liz Cheney I don't believe that that exists, and if it does, it's not measurable, it's not discernible, and there's no concerted strategy or effort that you could make to actually target and move that voter in a meaningful way towards a Liz Cheney, and I don't think that that's at all what her campaign would be doing. A, an independent effort, and so, so, so that's the argument, 
That, that's, that's functionally the argument. Uh, Lucas, if you want to disagree, feel free to jump in, or you can chat if you want to and tell, tell them why Mike's wrong. Totally open to that. Lucas has done a lot of work and spent a good part of the day looking back at about 10 years' worth of races, um, saying, Mike, you're, you're wrong on this. Basically, um, what we have seen is with third-party candidacies that that, that voter, that, that swingable voter, um, moves away from the Democrat. And in close races like Georgia, like Arizona, like Wisconsin, where there's only tens of thousands of votes, um, you know, a handful of voters in a few counties can swing this vote in the wrong direction and you might end up with a Donald Trump, right? And, and I, I, there's valid arguments to that. I'm not saying that's not a possibility. It is a possibility. But why I think it's different is this. In the same way that a Jill Stein cost Hillary Clinton the election or a Ralph Nader cost Al Gore the election, a, an independent 98% conservative voting record, blue-blooded royalty of the Republican Party, or at least the former Republican Party, has a lot more credibility. And by the way, if Liz Cheney were to run, she would get as much or more media attention as Donald Trump did in 2016. Okay, the media is frothing for this. They're, they're desperate to have this type of a scenario. They would love nothing more than a Liz Cheney to jump into this race because the ratings and the viewership go through the roof as this drama, as this saga plays out. And then these guys, you know, knock each other down one way from, um, Sunday to, to, to kind of not only battle for the heart, mind, and the soul of the Republican Party, but for the country. And, 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 and I, I just, it's very difficult for me to believe that heading into the 2020 election, where we were successful, very successful with this Bannon line strategy, that's, that's what cost Donald Trump re-election. I can prove that quantifiably, mathematically, county by county, based off of our spend. That's that's uh, one of the key coalition ingredients that put uh, Biden into the White House. If we had had a candidate, a conservative candidate to rally around the flag with, to rally the banner around with, and I, and, and I mean of a very significant stature, the way a, a Liz Cheney is, not like Evan McMullen, and Evan's a good friend of mine. He did, uh, as any patriot would, his job and his duty to try to stop Donald Trump for election. But there's no way that you could say Evan McMullen and Liz Cheney are comparable candidates. If Liz Cheney were to jump in, and we had her back in 2020, or somebody of her caliber, stature, resources, I believe that we would have, we would have won the race more handily. We, we just would have. I, I believe that. Do I believe Liz Cheney would have gotten more Republican votes than Republicans that switched over and voted for Joe Biden? Yes. I, yes. Yes, I believe that. I absolutely do believe that. Let me say that again because this is the argument that I'm making. The argument that I – again, the opposition argument is basically saying that you, you're not going to get those Democrats moving I'm sorry, you, 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 you lose the Republican defection to Biden and get that two-point swing. And if you go with what Madrid is saying, you need to get basically twice as many votes to hold Trump's numbers down. Because if we didn't have Republicans moving off of Trump and to Biden, Trump 
would have mathematically won states like Georgia and Arizona, possibly even Wisconsin. Okay, And that's, that's a real argument, like I said. But I'm going to also lay out the case right now why the scenario I think would have worked not only in 2020, but will work much better in 2024. Okay, So here's the Madrid argument. My argument is Donald Trump is currently polling at the lowest range since he secured the nomination in 2016. Okay? If you look at the outcomes of these races where these impeachments 10 or Trump-endorsed candidates are winning, they're winning by like 50%, 51-49%. Pete Meyer uh, in, in, um, in his contested race. If you look at Oz winning uh, in his race in Pennsylvania, he wins by like he gets a plurality, 38, 39% of the vote. Kerry Lake in Arizona wins by single digits. These are not blowouts, okay? And what's important there is that there's demonstrable voting for Republicans against the Trump-endorsed candidates. And it's not small. And it's not just measurable. It's very significant. We're talking like mid-high 40s. We're talking almost winning here. Okay? Now, will most of that base vote come home to the Republican nominee? Yes. Yes, it will. But what if half stays off? What if 60% stays off? What if 70% stays off? What if 70% returns home and votes for Trump and you still have 30% staying off? You have to have like 90% of the voters going back and supporting Trump in an environment where there's all, they're already demonstrating that they want to move past him. Another one of the brilliant young guys on the Lincoln Project who was in this chat with Lucas and I is a guy named Connor Rogers. Amazing, amazing digital skills. I would argue probably one of the best digital targeting strategists in American politics today. Sent over some data. You all seen the Marquette poll coming out today showing Mandela Barnes pulling ahead of Ron Johnson in Wisconsin by about six points. That same poll, that same poll in Wisconsin today shows 33% of Republicans want somebody other than Donald Trump to run. If you look at the Ipsos NPR poll, 19% of Republicans think Donald Trump committed a crime related to January 6th. This was before the raid at Mar-a-Lago, before we knew that this clown had kept the nuclear secrets in a cardboard box in his rusty safe at Mar-a-Lago. Okay? That's before that. So there's this growing discernible base that is either saying, I want Trump gone, there's Trump fatigue syndrome has set in, I'm done with the guy, to I'm supporting Liz Cheney to the tune of 28, 29, 30%, whatever the numbers came in at, to 33% in state swing states like Wisconsin saying, I don't want to vote for Donald Trump again. This is that, that same base is the same voters. There is now a discernible 19, 20, upwards of maybe 30%. We're talking mid-20s of Republicans. One in four Republican voters don't want to have anything to do with this guy, and they're spending time on primaries showing up to walk to the local school and say just that. That's a very significant sign of opposition. Okay? It's, it's very significant. I want to compare that 
to where we were at in 2019, a year out of the general election when I and seven other people co-founded the Lincoln Project. Okay, You have to remember, in November, December of 2019, we were gearing up for the first impeachment hearing. The entire Republican establishment had coalesced completely around Donald Trump and was about to vote to say they didn't even want to see the evidence. They didn't want to see the evidence of the crimes that they all knew that he committed. Donald Trump's support levels amongst Republican-based voters were sitting anywhere between the mid-high 80s and low 90s in support. Okay? That's almost double where his support levels are right now. So you can't tell me that there isn't a lane, a quote-unquote lane, for a, a conservative. This isn't like an Andrew Yang centrist. We're a party that doesn't stand for anything, but we're in the middle, not right, not left. We're forward. This is a 98% dyed-in-the-wool, rock-rib conservative Republican who knows these voters, knows what's at stake, and is willing to drive her career over the cliff to defend the country. You can't tell me with just the numbers I laid out, and trust me, I can show you virtually every poll on this subject or others, either state by state or nationally, that's going to say the same exact thing since about April of this year. You throw in the Roe decision, you throw in the Uvalde shooting, you throw in the J6 hearings, you throw in now the FBI raid. You can't tell me the guy's getting stronger, right? Just an hour and a half ago, two hours ago, Weisselberg said he's going to flip and turn state's evidence on the, on the audit of uh, the, the Trump uh, empire's finances, right? Everyone is now turning state's evidence with the exception of the Trump kids, we're probably going to go to jail until they start turning on each other. Is this going to somehow consolidate the base? I, it, it, it might make the existing base more frothy, more radioactive, more glow-in-the-dark pissed off. That's absolutely a possibility. In fact, I would argue it's probably a likelihood. That's, that's why you saw all these goons immediately rushing to Donald Trump's defense on Fox News, probably falling all over each other, trying to get onto Hannity or Tucker or, or Laura Ingram's show to demonstrate their fealty and say, how dare they? Alyssa Farah says this is going to guarantee Donald Trump the presidency. And what happens? Within 24 hours, they all shut their mouths and go radio silence. Nobody says anything. Why? Because they all know that the, pro- that, that, that the evidence that's going to come out is going to continually get worse for this guy. So polling, and we haven't seen any really good polling yet. It's been too soon. That's going to come out in the period right after the Mar-a-Lago raid. But here's what I believe is going to happen. That Mar-a-Lago raid is going to show a rally around the flag effect amongst Republican voters. It's going to coalesce and, and, and show a pop in support. For Donald Trump, amongst Republican voters, DeSantis is probably going to start falling further back in the pack, probably to the tune of 7 to 12 points, something in that range. But, and this is really important, but independents are going to continue the leftward drift away from the Republicans. And that's why Kevin McCarthy is waking up in the middle of the night with cold sweats and doing everything he can to fight Donald Trump's instinct to jump into this race before the midterms. The biggest loser, the biggest loser 
of Donald Trump announcing pre-midterms is Kevin McCarthy. But that's increasingly the only solution to Donald Trump's problems. His legal problems are now so significant, so real, and so close. His best legal solution is a political solution. And that's never a good place to be, by the way. But that's the only option he's got is to jump into this race and start rallying the public around his martyr complex by saying, they're not coming after me, they're really coming after you. They're not attacking me, they're attacking you, and they're trying to put me in jail uh, because they're all lying. Everybody's lying. Even all of my top advisors are lying. Everybody's a liar except for me and this hypothetical you. It's going to be really interesting when this gets down to the Trump family to see which one of the kids turns on daddy first, but that will happen. That will happen. Probably won't happen before November, but we're getting pretty close. Okay? So back to Cheney. And remember, guys, jump into the queue if you've got any questions here. But back to Cheney. There is a discernible lane now in the Never Trump faction. And it is a faction. It's not going to become a third party. Okay? Because right now, all of these people are simply thinking tactically. They're thinking strategically and saying, what can I do to prevent this danger and this threat to the country. I do believe it is bigger than everybody gives it credit for. It's not huge. It's certainly not 50%. It's certainly not, you know, any more than than probably 30%. And if it were 30%, I, I and that might be a little bit generous, but when I see numbers in Wisconsin, a swing state where 33% say we want to vote for somebody else, sure, some of those are going to go home. Sure, 15, 18, 20 you know, percent of those uh, will be remaining. The other 75 percent will go back and vote for Trump when it's him against Biden or him against whoever. Yeah, yeah, that's going to happen. But remember, when the Bannon line is three to five percent, let's say five percent was the numbers that we were shooting for. When you're st- when you're getting 15 percent, that is a tectonic collapse. There is no way that Donald Trump could win re-election if 15% of Republicans are defecting and their base level supports for him. That puts North Carolina in play. That starts to move Ohio back into contention. It starts to bring a whole host of other states back into play and really locking down the Georgias, the Arizonas, and the Wisconsins. So in my mind, the best play for Cheney, and I may be a, a minority voice in this, but again, campaigns aren't – if campaigns were just about data, we wouldn't have elections, people. You could just run the numbers through a computer and you know, pick a winner based off of what the data says. It's like why play a baseball game if sabermetrics can tell you? Because the data is a reflection of the game. It's not the game itself. It's the same thing you need to remember about all of these data analysts. 95% of them have never run campaigns, and it's why they're wrong so often. So, Annika, I see you in the queue. I'm going to get to you in just a second. Let me make this one last point. My firm belief is that what Cheney needs to do, Liz Cheney needs to do, give it a couple months, do the media circuit. She's got $7 million in the bank left over. Start a national fundraising organization. Organize, organize, organize all of the anti-Trump movement. That is the one thing the anti-Trump movement has not had, has not had a high-profile candidate or a leader to lead it. Lincoln Project was not that. We were a bunch of consultants. RVAT was not that. That was a bunch of consultants. Principles First, God bless them, love that organization. They are not that. They're a bunch of grassroots activists. 
Okay, there's a lot of, of anti-Trump groups on the right. Cheney can organize that. She can put meat on those bones. That is something we did not have in 2020, in 2019 heading into 2020. She has the capacity to raise millions of dollars overnight. We did not have that in 2019 going into 2020. We did not have grassroots leaders in every one of the 50 states. She will now have that. So she's going to have organization, the ability to mobilize, the ability to move voters. And to, in my estimation, if we had that in 2020, we would have beat him by a bigger number. I think that the environment is considerably stronger now than it was then. Annika, let's go ahead and take your question. Just unmute the button in the lower right there and we'll get going. So um, I got a question. Like some of the states, the Senate run, this, those candidates from Republican, they are not crazy, but they don't really talk about against Trump and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. those states, can we associate, like, let's say they put advertisement, like saying like, yes, so-and-so is okay, but we associate with the Georgia candidates, the Arizona candidates, you know, can we associate all those crazy people with the regular Republican candidates? Kind of like- yeah, that's that's a big point. Yeah, I think if, if the question is, do these extremist candidates start to frame the party in the minds yeah. of yeah. voters? The answer is yes. That is exactly what starts to happen as people tune in. Look, most Americans don't know who Marjorie Taylor Greene is. Okay, most Americans don't know that Dr. Oz lives in New Jersey. Uh, You know, most 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 voters are not paying attention to their own races, let alone the race in Georgia, where Herschel Walker is probably the single dumbest candidate I've ever seen running in the 30 years that I've been in professional politics. Right. None of that. None of that matters yet. But it's beginning to set the frame of what the party stands for. Now, when you throw in other issues like the overturning of Roe the inability or lack of desire to do reasonable common sense gun reform, the fact that the insurrection is now starting to be placed on the desk of Donald Trump and a half a dozen U.S. senators and probably a dozen members of Congress, all of these bricks starts to make a wall around the frame of how the voters start to view the parties. And anybody who's listened to me for any period of time knows that I base all of my strategic approaches on this concept called negative partisanship. And that is that people vote against things. They don't vote for things, okay? Especially medium and lower propensity voters. Those voters that don't vote as often, that aren't, aren't paying attention, watching cable news, they're not following Mike Madrid on Twitter. These are, not, these are people that, ha- that are doing other things, Right, they're they're out making a living, taking the kids to soccer practice, doing the fundraisers for you know their charity work, and 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 going about their business. Those people will start to see the extremists of the Republican Party, and the party that is viewed the most negatively loses. So that's why, and I started saying this in the springtime when the polling cycle started again. We got to be really careful with the generic ballot. Because you're making a mistake if you look at it as a horse race. That's not the way to look at that data. It's far better to look at the negatives of each party and what is driving that behavior. And the shift that we've seen 
in the last six weeks is a perfect example of that. The Democrats six weeks ago were about to get completely annihilated. A massive red wave was coming up until the Roe decision. And when Roe Wade was decided, you saw a huge shift. We were just talking with the data team about this again. I think a 28-point swing with men against the Republican Party. Women had already largely left in droves, the ones that were going to leave. You're seeing huge spikes in female registration. Kansas was a perfect example of that. Independents are breaking huge towards the Democrats. That's why Barnes, Mandela Barnes in Wisconsin, is now up six points. He was down in the polling before Roe. It's not that people love Barnes. It's that they hate Johnson. They hate Republicans. They're afraid of the Republican Party. That's what's driving this shift back to a stronger position for the Democrats. I hope that that was a helpful answer, Annika. Thanks for being a regular caller and coming in. Gene, we're going to go ahead and add you up into the queue right now. Go ahead and unmute your phone, and let's hear your question. Gene, you gotta, you got to unmute on the lower right is your little microphone there. Gene, are you there? I'm hoping you're not talking into uh, because we can't hear you. Let me see if I can unmute you. Nope, lost Gene. Renee, regular caller, we'll bring you up. Renee, how hey, are you? Um, I have a question. Um, all right, what you said earlier about um, 19 to 20% of Republicans want somebody other than Trump. Um, is that principle going to translate when it comes to Trump candidates in the midterms? Or um, is that going to be a smaller percentage? Or how do you see that playing out? That's a really fantastic question. Let me answer it this way. Uh, I don't believe that the concept that we used to call coach tales when I was a younger person in the business exists anymore. Okay. And here's, here's why. I'm going to give you two examples of why, one on each side of the aisle. In 2020, when we were doing work with the Lincoln Project, what we found was in the highest turnout election in the history of the country, the Republican Party actually did better right? The Republicans picked up seats at the same time that the top of the ticket candidate lost. Down ballot. Yeah, down ballot. Republicans won at the top of the ticket. Trump loses. What that tells us is that the voters are discerning and they're no longer connecting the leader, the titular head of the party, the top of the ticket with what the party means downstairs or down ticket, right? So there's, there's one example. The second, which I think is probably most important, was this persistent gap that we were seeing from about January of this year until, until now. The gap is getting smaller, but that is Biden's numbers were sitting in the 30s, horrible numbers. But the, the generic ballot for Democrats was actually within plus or minus one or two points with the Republicans. What that means is, in that instance, Democrats and independents were making a distinction between their feelings about Biden and the Democratic Party. So voters on both sides are no longer identifying their top person in the party as the average elected official in that situation. Okay. Now, that, that, so, so, so both Republicans and Democrats are now disassociating their presidential level contenders with their congressional votes. We saw Republicans actually do that in the, in the election, and we've been seeing watching Democrats polling uh, to that effect for the past eight months. 
What does that mean? If I could for one second, Renee, because it's a really great question. What what does that mean uh, for Trump getting in? Why is Kevin McCarthy so afraid then? If, if, if voters don't see a connection between Trump and his party, what does it matter? Okay. Well, in this case, it really matters because what's going to happen is Donald Trump will force every member, every candidate running to follow along the line of what he needs to have happen um, with his legal problems. <laughs> He's got to continue the big lie. He's got to continue to say defund the FBI. Folks, the freaking Republican Party is running now on defunding the FBI. If the Democrats don't drive a Mack truck through that hole and exploit the hell out of that issue, I, there's no helping them. I mean, that is a, a massive, massive opportunity. So well, I'll, I'll quit going on. Go ahead. Especially after the defund the police debacle. Of yeah. The and how they it, got it, Exactly. Yeah, they're, they're, I, it's unbelievable. It's like they're taking the defund the police argument, had all of their people saying back the blue and you guys are crazy, and now they're trying to shift them to saying, oh, yeah, not, defund the FBI. Let's go after our top law enforcement in the country because they're somehow all after Donald Trump. You know, CPAC has got banners saying we are all domestic terrorists. Like that may rile up your people and it really gets your Twitter feed blowing up. But the average independent and moderate voter, moderate Republican voter, they, they are still there. I still believe that that 19 to 20 percent is really struggling. They know that the party's crazy. They're just afraid of the Democrats. Like I said, people are voting against the Democrats, not for the Republican Party. You see this type of extremism popping up and you start to shake out a handful of those voters. Again, it's why I think the Liz strategy, Liz Cheney independent strategy is smarter than most people think that it is. But again, I digress. Renee, I appreciate the questions. Appreciate you being a regular listener and always bringing great topics to the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Josh, my man. Hey, what's up, buddy? Um, You're up. What you got? I I can hear you great. I have just a couple of minor questions. One's kind of just a personal hunch. Uh, I, I don't think Trump is going to run. And whether he's indicted for crimes or not. And I was just kind of curious... If you had what your hunch, I mean, no one knows, but I think he wants to think he's going to run, and I don't think he's ever going to. I, I just want to know what you think about just that alone. I have a follow-up after that. Yeah, so uh, a great question. Again, this is all a hunch and speculation. If you had asked me before the Mar-a-Lago situation, the raid from 72 hours ago, whenever it was, I would have said – He's absolutely running. He's going to get in, right? He's been floating this um, eight, was it eight, eight, eight twenty-two, whatever it is, some August date. He'd been putting out on Truth Social, you know, that they were going to come and you know make that the big announcement. Then was prepping for it. This raid then happens, and I think that that really, really puts a pause on it. And he's starting to get no question about it. The Kevin McCarthy's of the world. Probably McConnell world, not McConnell himself, but McConnell through back channels getting to Trump and saying, hold your powder, at least wait till after the midterms because this could actually destroy us. And, and if we don't get a Republican control of one of these houses, you're going to go to jail. Like your best chance of staying out of jail is the Republicans getting at least control of at least one house. 
right? And his best bet, his best bet right now, Trump's best bet right now is keeping control of the House of Representatives. So he's going to listen to Kevin McCarthy to the greatest extent that he can. And when I say that, I mean that because we all know that Trump can't control himself, let alone be controlled by others. And that's why this is a hunch. It's a wild card. I do believe, I do believe that as his problems mount, he's going to be like a caged animal. He's just completely cornered, and he's got no other choice than to lash out, and I believe that he will. I think he will incite violence amongst his people to start attacking government institutions. He'll start using more heated rhetoric to uh, attack the FBI and to use guns, to use violence. Um, and I, I, so I don't know. That may, I, I, my, my inclination is he still will run because he's going to be so desperate. He's going to have to start making the political case that right. Um, right. this is political and that will rally and keep Republicans together longer. But at some point, I, I'm still, I still believe, I, I, I've been wrong about this 150 times, I still believe that Republicans in elected office, at some point, there will be some breaks away from him, and people will start saying, enough, this guy's bad for the country, he's got to go away. I, I completely agree with that. Also, your point about like Mitch McConnell and other Republicans, um that kind of indicates that rumor that the RNC told him, like, look, we're not going to pay your legal bills if you fucking announce or right. run. Right. Anyway, uh, my, my other question is just kind of, um, just, it's just, you know, I'm a, a, a lifelong liberal Democrat kind of center-left dude. And, uh, you know, I miss guys like you and Stuart Stevens and the party. But my question is just sort of like, because I know you're, your history with, you know, campaign strategies and the GOP and California and this and that is that it's a simple one. Is that so? I there were and and and, and Liz Cheney has completely totally put a mirror on this. I fucking love her. Is that you know there's in the GOP there's the guys like the Mitch McConnell, the Lindsey Graham's, the Kevin McCarthy's. Like, I know they don't fucking love Trump. They hate Trump. They would love it more that he just went away. And then there are the, the real true believers, the cult, you know, the mortgage of the Lone Boulevards, you know, the Persia Walker, you know who I'm talking about. Yep, and so, of course. And yeah. my, so, but my, so, and, and, I and of course, like, their base is fanatic. They love Trump. So they're like, there's this cowardice, like, you know, they want to keep their seats, but it's like, I just don't understand, like, that same brand that they're sticking to, that brand, that Zach Mega lost the election. And I just can't understand, no matter, and like, and I account for the fact that, yeah, there's political cowardice, people want to keep their jobs, but they, that brand fucking lost in 2020 against Biden. But, and yeah. they know, they also know, but they know that the same Republicans that voted against Trump voted heavily down ballot for other congressional Republicans. Democrats lost seats. Why are they not trying harder to eradicate mega from their party than yeah. they already are? And, like, and I just cannot, I've known Republicans almost, I'm 40, and I've never seen, I just, cannot i try to understand yeah. i can't understand it 
I think I, I think I yeah. It lost, and I don't get. I got it. it. I got it. So, great question. First thing is, if you haven't read Tim Miller's book, Why We Did It, it just oh, came out. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I had I had a book signing with him in Sacramento um, last Friday. Um, it's a great book. It's a real takedown. It's a funny, funny read, but it gets right to the heart of your question. So let me explain it from my perspective. Again, as a California Republican who has watched the Republican Party continue to engage this circular firing squad activity and never figuring it out when it's just completely obvious. And the short answer is there's a certain cult of, of being the loser, a mythology of being a loser where when it's your whole identity, rather than adapt, you assign virtue into losing. You start to, to take on the fact that if only people were as smart as you or as pure as you or as righteous as you, then they would start to understand. And sometimes as human beings, that's easier than coming to accept the fact that your views are no longer acceptable or part of the mainstream. And when that happens, you start devolving into tribal politics and you start to become really susceptible to conspiracy theories because someone is going to come and tell you they stole the election. We can't be wrong. It's just these people are so evil. They're so bad. They're such liars and they're only winning because they're stealing it from us, not because they are as righteous or noble or smart as we are. And of course, it's absurd, but that's how these movements start. That's how these movements begin. And it's why it is, it is so damn difficult to get voters out of this cult that has developed. 70% of Republicans, 70% of Republicans believe that there was something wrong with our elections in 2020. That is a, a jaw-dropping astronomical number and it just shows how deep and per pervasive this cult is. That 30% could stop it today if they had the guts to stand up and do it, but that's why they won't. is because they're more afraid of the 70% of their own party and what it will mean to their own leadership, their own title, their own money, their own status in the party, and there's no way they're going to give that up. They'd rather go down in a, in a burning mass of flames than actually address the honest fact. Josh, I appreciate the call, brother. I'm going to take another call right now. Great to hear from you. Thanks for always being there. Victoria, you're up on stage. Victoria, go ahead and unmute in the lower right there. Just hit that microphone. Got it. Can you hear me? I can hear you great, loud and clear. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. How about you? I love listening to you ever since you know the last election. You've been a Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. Glad it could be helpful. Um, What's I on your mind? DeSantis. So yeah. what happens if Trump doesn't run? What would the landscape look like between Cheney and DeSantis? Because I don't really see a whole lot of difference between Trump and DeSantis. That's a good question. Yeah, let me, let me give you a little bit of inside information first, and then we'll get to that question specifically. DeSantis is interesting right now. I was speaking to a reporter a couple of days ago. Um, who was talking about the fallout um, or lack thereof in the Republican Party um, uh, with the Mar-a-Lago raid. The, the biggest loser, as I mentioned, was Kevin McCarthy. But, but right clip, clipping on his heels is DeSantis because DeSantis doesn't have a message. Once the MAGA crowd and the MAGA mob start to see the FBI and the government as you know attacking their guy, their cult king, 
the appetite for DeSantis just completely went away, completely sapped all the oxygen out of the room. And so um, DeSantis doesn't have a whole lot of room to maneuver right now. Um, but if let's say Trump goes to jail or Trump decides not to run or whatever, DeSantis's next move, um, I believe he's, he's next in line, at least this early on, he's next in line to obviously pick up the mantle. Regardless of whether there's a difference or not, and I would agree with you, there's not a whole lot of difference between DeSantis and, and Trump in a lot of ways, with, with one big caveat, and that is I believe, I very firmly believe that Donald Trump is a unique threat to the republic. DeSantis may be a bad guy, but you're not going to have tens of thousands of people showing up at rallies for this guy in the middle of the off-year election after he was doing illegal shit because you can't just pass a cult phenomenon from one leader to the next. That's not the way cults work. Um, But I do believe that he's the heir to whatever is is left of this MAGA mess that he's going to try to coalesce and bring it back together. Having said that, what I will say this about 2024 is this. It's going to be very, very, very close. It's going to be very close in the same way that 2020 was and in the same way that 2016 was. And it's all going to come down to less than 100,000 votes scattered across three or four states. Okay? Yep. So it yep. does, and I don't care if it's DeSantis. I don't, I don't care if it's, if it's Ivanka Trump. I don't care if it's Tucker Carlson. I don't care if it's whoever it is. Christy, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And that's because our environment is so highly partisanized and there are so few swing voters. That's again, I'm going to wrap the answer up, Victoria, by saying that's why I believe the Liz Cheney candidacy independently makes so much sense. There are very smart people who will say, no, Mike, that's why the Liz Cheney candidacy makes absolutely no sense. And I respect that. I just think they're wrong because there are votes to be pulled out of the Republican base. There absolutely are. And there are more of them than we secured using the Bannon line strategy on the Lincoln Project. We were successful. We were almost dead on bullseye with our numbers, our targets, where we were spending we weren't lucky either. We were grinding on this thing, and we knew our data cold. We knew exactly what we were trying to accomplish, and we got in there, and we did it. Having said that, 2024 is going to be different. I don't think Florida is that competitive a state. I just don't. I do believe that Georgia is more blue than people realize in a presidential race. I think Arizona is more blue than people realize. I'm worried about Wisconsin slipping back into a Republican position. And I also think states like New Hampshire are going to get redder in a presidential election than we're used to. So the electoral map, the map to 270, is not going to look like it looked like in 2020. And in 2020, it did not look like it did in 2016. And in 2016, it did not look like it did in 2012. See the pattern there? Yeah. So that's going to continue. But what I am guaranteeing is that it will come down to 100,000 votes scattered across three or four different states. And being tactical is a hell of a lot more important than being strategic because voters are not moving the way that they historically have in this country in a healthy democracy. Fun. 
Yeah, I hope that was helpful. Thank you for that great question. Thank you. You bet. Next caller is M. Pull you up. Unmute. There we are. There you are. Hey, how are you doing? Well, the start of the program was super encouraging, and now I'm nauseous again with the, it's going to be super <laughs> close. So you know what? We're hey. going to have to take another turn here, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's, let's, have, let's have the question. Let, but let me, let, me, let me address that really, really quickly. Okay. If, you look at, if you look at actual raw votes, mm-hmm. races are actually, they're almost always pretty close. Like, they're not that far off. Uh, if, you look at the, if you look at the percentages, and this is probably not the best example, but it's the most recent example, Wyoming is a very small state. And so the percentages are Liz Cheney loses 70-30 or whatever. But the actual raw votes, it's, it's like the size of a, a medium to small size city in California, right? So when we look at percentages, percentages give us this skewed sense of the race. And as Lucas, who's listening in here, will tell you, I'd scream at him every day saying, I don't want percentages. I want to know the raw votes. Give me raw votes. And that's what a good mentor in the business will tell younger practitioners is we don't get elected by percentages. We get elected by votes. So I want hard numbers. And the hard numbers, when you look at a race through hard numbers and not percentages, Mm -hmm. you see that these races are all – almost all of these races are far closer than we expect, than than we are giving them credit for. Um, and and that's, that's, that's normal, too. That's normal even outside of a highly partisanized environment that we're in. But, but most races in a democracy are actually quite close. So that's why polling also gives me a little bit of the heebie-jeebies because percentages don't tell you really um, insightfully what's happening with the dynamics in the race. They're good for momentum. They're good for movement. You guys who listen to me, mm-hmm. I'll say it again. Uh, you got to watch the movement, but but raw numbers is is now in the last hundred days. I start screaming at my data guys. I want numbers. I want raw numbers. I want hard votes. Don't give me percentages. Give me a sense of the race from that perspective. So sorry about that diatribe there. <laughs> Didn't even ask a question, and I went on a lecture there. No, you're still just going to have to end this with a little bit of another upbeat moment here, Mike. Okay, we, all right. We let me try. On you for that. However, I'll I do my best. Be helping yeah. you with that with my question, which is a bit of a left turn, but you're in Brazil or have been working or something with Brazil, tweeting about Brazil. And is mm-hmm. there an outcome that is not complete and total chaos? Like, is there a possibility of not complete total chaos in Brazil? All road, yeah. Or do all roads lead to pretty dramatic stuff? Yeah, let me let me uh, a cat's out of the bag. So let me just kind of acknowledge I'm I'm actually uh, in Rio de Janeiro right now. I'm, I'm at my hotel room overlooking the Copacabana at night. Uh, I am working on let me let me put it this way. I'm working on pro democracy efforts in Brazil at the moment. Uh, Brazil is having its elections in October, October 2nd, and then they will have a runoff if nobody gets uh, to tw- uh, to 50 percent on October the 20th. One of the reasons why I think this is so important is Steve Bannon has says this is one of the most important races for the international MAGA movement. Uh, Jair Bolsonaro, Jair Bolsonaro, who is the current president, calls himself the Trump of the tropics. He announced on a platform of running on God and guns and um, and um, conservative values. He believes that the military should oversee the elections. Um, a lot of this is very, very much like what we are seeing with Orban in Hungary, Erdogan in Turkey, Duterte in the Philippines. It, there is a global movement to support fascists amongst each other. 
and Steve Bannon has been involved. Jason Miller, I think you guys probably know, flew down here. CPAC was held down here. Um, they're all helping each other out. So having said that, yesterday was the first day that they officially begin campaign season. In Brazil, what you have is an official season, a legally sanctioned time to campaign. That began yesterday, and it will go through um, October. Now, the polling, and they've got compulsory voting in here. Sorry, sorry about this uh, Brazil question, but but it's, 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 it's very unique and obviously different like all democracies are. But Brazil has compulsory voting. You have to vote in Brazil. And so polling actually in some ways gets easier, even though there are a lot of, lot of millions and millions of very impoverished people without access to cell phones and landlines. Um, the pollsters, actually, their polling is pretty good. It has Bolsonaro sitting in a, in a stuck range at about mid-30s, 35%. He's down about 20 points behind a guy who goes by Lula, Lula da Silva, but Lula for short. Uh, Lula was a previous president who was driven out basically on corruption charges. Democracies are not always clean things. You got to choose between a dictator and a corrupt guy sometimes in, in democracies. Um, and then the, the, the head-to-head shows Lula beating Bolsonaro uh, by about 16 points at this point in the game. That's down from 28 points back in April. So Bolsonaro is is tightening up a little bit. Most of the vote going to Lula is anti-Bolsonaro votes. If that sounds familiar, if it sounds like negative partisanship, <laughs> it is. This is a glo- This is the way voter psychology works. No matter where you're at, what language you speak, what culture you're in, people will vote against things more than they will vote for things. That's why negative ads work, by the way, folks. And so, so I, I, I'm optimistic. I feel good. The worry here is that Bolsonaro has basically said if we don't have transparent elections, then the military won't tolerate that, which is basically a sign that, you know, kind of like Trump was saying, is if I don't like the outcome of the elections, there's going to be a coup. He's lined up all of those dynamics for that. And um, the margins become very important. And that was, yeah. that was one of the things we were really hoping for in the Lincoln Project, is if we blew Trump out, if we could put it away by four points, three points, um, you know, in, the, in a lot of these states, then the, the, the belief that the election was stolen, um, we knew he was going to say that. We knew he was going to try to overturn the elections. We knew he was going to try to steal the elections from us in the states. We knew Trump was going to do that. The hope was we could drive up the margins to a point where that would become less credible. And even though his own people said it was a safe election, um, you know, his ego doesn't allow him to do anything but lie, and 70 million people believe him. So I don't know if that was the best answer, but I feel better. I would rather be Lula than Bolsonaro at this point, and that's good for democracy. Right. My um, Someone I was talking to, though, I was the reason I asked the question is, you know, in the broader context, I was talking to someone who supports Bolsonaro, and I said, well, what if Lula wins? And he says, well, if Lula wins, that'll be fine, you know, except... No, I said, are you concerned that Bolsonaro would try to take over if he loses? And he said, well, if Lula wins, that's fine, except he can't win because if he wins, then it's because it was fake. And so if there was a coup d'etat, he said straight up, if there's a coup d'etat because of that, then that's okay with him. And I was like, wait, what? And he said, yeah, it's fine with me because the only way that that Bolsonaro would lose fairly is, well, he wouldn't lose fairly. But that's not a possibility in the realm of possibility. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it's Trumpism. 
it's it's this the problem the 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 problems that we are facing in the United States. It's why I'm here. It's why I went to Ukraine. It's mm-hmm. why I do this work. Is I do it because a fight for democracy everywhere is now a fight for democracy at home. And the midterms are very important, but we can't forget what is happening in the rest of the world because it's all interconnected. And so when you're fighting against that mentality, if my guy doesn't win, then I'm going to tear democracy down and it's okay if it goes away. That's what we're fighting against, folks. I need to push you to think about it globally that way. Think about it because your efforts are so important in fighting for democracy at home in the United States, but know that there are freedom fighters like you that are trying to engage and hold on to it everywhere in the world because it is under extreme pressure by people using the same tactics, the same techniques, and the same strategies, and we need to help them where we can because if democracies start to fall, it's going to be harder to protect our own at home. And the stronger we are, the stronger Brazil is, the stronger Ukraine is, the, the, the stronger we are in the global fight for this really, really difficult time in human history for democracy. Thank you, Mike. Thanks so much. Thanks, Sam, for the question. I appreciate that. Eliana, you're coming up. Hey, can you hear me? Welcome. Yeah, I can hear you loud and clear. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. What's your question? Um, so I was hoping you could help me with something that's been bugging me. Um, so I'm trying to figure out what what is this the game plan in the potential challengers Cheney uh, aside, God bless her if she actually takes on the challenge, but um, mm-hmm. what is their actual, like, how are they playing this out in their head on challenging Trump? It seems to me like either they are hoping that he doesn't run or dies or or what? I mean, he's not going to, he's going to stop the steal them as well. So what yeah. do they actually think is going to happen? Either they're going to well, lose to him or mm-hmm. they're going to have the same mess that we have now with him. Uh, he's not going to accept a loss in a primary. It's probably going to make it worse for him. It's because of his ego. So I just don't get that. I, I think you're exactly right. So let me, let me, let me, um, you know, kind of handicap the field as I see it. There are, there are really kind of two people that have been prodding at this in an interesting way. The first is DeSantis and DeSantis is playing the inside game where you're starting to see Fox News and Rupert Murdoch and the Fox News properties really tired of Trump. They're worried about his ability to be reelected, and it's clear that Ron DeSantis is the next anointed one. So good chances you're going to start seeing the media, the right-wing media led by Fox, start moving in that direction as Trump's legal problems get worse. The difficulty is going to be, to a previous caller's question, What if Trump announces for president? Then he can't be ignored and he can't be dismissed. And it's going to be really hard to not rally around him, which is why, to Josh's question earlier, I'm leaning on him probably getting in as things get worse for him. But there's no question that DeSantis is playing the behind the scenes game and trying to curry favor with the really big money and the big media personalities. And, and Rupert Murdoch himself, because if he can start to shift that narrative away from Donald Trump and start saying Trump has tainted goods, he can't win re-election, I can, I'm the same thing as Trump, except I'm not crazy and I don't do mean tweets, but I can still you know, follow the same policy agenda, and it's clear that the Republican base likes me second, that's where you need to be. That's Ron DeSantis. That's his inside game. The other guy who's not going to go anywhere but is doing something interesting is Chris Christie, right? And what Chris Christie is doing is he's playing the outside game. 
he's staking a position outside by pointedly saying Donald Trump's bad, Donald Trump's got to go. Now, Chris Christie and Donald Trump have had this relationship on again, off again, 20 times over their history. But there's a reason why Christie is doing that. The main reason is Christie can't win the inside game. DeSantis already has it locked up. And, he, and Trump is certainly never going to allow Christie into that lane anyway. So it's kind of his only choice. But the fact that he's doing it means that Christie is betting on one thing, and that is he is betting on a Trump collapse. He is betting yeah, right, on, yeah. on Trump going down with the FBI, with the DOJ, with the J6 committee, with the, with the uh, prosecutors in New York, and the attorney general in Georgia, and wherever else this guy's got legal problems. He's betting that one of these things brings him down, and the fact that he is staking the outside public game will give him a ton of media attention. It's a high-stakes gamble, but it's actually the only, only route to doing what he's going to do. It's the only route for a guy like Chris Christie to resuscitate his political career. I think the chances of it working are less than 5%. But if it does, it resuscitates him, and he's got no choice, so why the hell not? Yeah, but isn't that kind of, I mean, they're both, both of their plans are both um, predicated on Trump collapsing or not ever getting in, it seems like. I mean, even, even DeSantis, the same idea. If he gets in and actually challenges Trump, that doesn't seem like it ends well for you know either one. Either they're going to have a Trump will burn the party down on the way out if he actually loses, or Trump will win. So it seems like both of them are are only, only there's only Plan A, and it's he doesn't get in or he collapses early. That's you just encapsulated it perfectly. That's exactly right. That doesn't mean that politicians, because they're just narcissistic yeah. and overly ambitious by nature, that they can't help themselves but try. And remember. Donald Trump controls the entire party apparatus. There's nobody who can run against Trump and beat him in a primary. Like, that's not going to happen. And what that means is it means he controls all the levers of power in the party in Washington, D.C. And what that means is the entire establishment can't speak out or, or move, yeah. maneuver, maneuver in position the way they want to. And I don't mean just like the 50 senators and the 200 you know, House representatives. I mean the thousands of lobbyists, the thousands of consultants, the thousands of fundraisers. All of these people cannot move off of him. I don't know if you guys saw, but Shane Goldmacher from the New York Times just reported that one of the researchers from America Rising, America Rising is an opposition research firm, uh, for the Republicans, he was just fired because it, it was found just this morning. It, he was fired this morning because they found out that he was actually helping Liz Cheney with opposition research, and they snuffed him out. They found him. They fired him from America Rising. He'll never work in American uh, in, in Republican politics again. I'm bringing this up because my point is there are thousands and thousands of Republican operatives. Uh, and think tankers and consultants and lobbyists who want Donald Trump gone. But they're all too damn afraid to say it. And as long as they remain cowards, they're going to remain under his thumb. And the rest of us are just going to have to suffer for it. Yeah, I just don't get it because it just feels like they haven't learned the lesson. It's the same thing. You just have to confront him or he's never going to go away until he dies. So confront him. That's yeah, and and the the sooner the sooner you do it, the the greater the likelihood of success, and the more you give cover for other people to do totally. it. Right? That was kind of totally. the argument of the Lincoln Project. Let's get out there. Let's go after them. Gone by now, and they would have been gone. Great news yeah. for the midterms. But 
That's exactly right. They're just too – they're afraid of their own shadows. It really speaks to the weakness of the Republican character and the political class generally. Um, look, I think that it's a Democratic problem too, but it's nowhere near nowhere near as problematic as it is for the Republican Party. Don't, don't get me wrong. Don't misquote me on that. Don't, don't jump down my throat. That's not what I'm trying to say. Is they're, not, they're not equivalent, but it is a part of the political system that is broken. We cannot have cowards enabling the rise of dictatorship, and that's what we have right now. So I appreciate your call, Ileana. Thanks yeah, for thank joining. You. It's a great thank question, and we'll talk again right. soon. Right. Look who's in the queue now. Look who's in the queue. Let me make a brief introduction while Lucas gets off of his microphone. Lucas was my data guy. By the way, if you don't know who, who Lucas is, you're going you're gonna to meet Lucas. Uh, I'm, I'm going to break a little bit of news here for my insiders here. Um, <laughs> Lincoln Project is the, the Lincoln Project documentary is going to be coming out on October the seventh. It's going to be on Showtime, and I think it's going to be a pretty big deal. It's going to be a five episode docu series, and Lucas is somebody you're going to become very familiar with because this young man um, was my brain for so much of the data work on this campaign. Um, he's very largely responsible for the defeat of Donald Trump. He's the one guy most of you probably don't know but should know. And he's telling me at this moment that my strategy on Liz Cheney is wrong. Well, so even well. even though we disagree on this, I listen to this guy. So, Lucas, I want you to share with your listeners what your sense of things is. Mike, it's great to chat with you again. I miss you. You're going to make me tear up, and that is breaking news to me as well. You know, I would probably take, I know that you have the idea that this would be a viable candidacy. I would like to start with one, two points. One, I think that just given the system that we are in, the two-party system that we're in, um, and that there is most, the most discontent with our two-party system at this point, then it's been in decades, you know, in democratic leaning voters and Republican-leaning voters. There's discontent across the board. I don't see that there is a viable candidacy for any independent candidate out there. And if you're going to be running for the soul of the party and trying to reform it, then you should run within that party, that system. I think that's what Cheney should do in the primary. And I think that if she's going to have a chance, her best chance is going to be running in the primary. That's one thing. Um, the second thing is just hearkening back to where what we did at the Lincoln Project and a lot of these voters that we were going after, you know, there has never been more unpopular candidates, presidents than Donald Trump and Joe Biden these days. And a lot of these voters that we would go after, we called them sort of the double haters. They, you know, they have high disapproval of both Trump. They have high disapproval of Clinton in 2016, these voters overwhelmingly swung towards towards Trump in 2016, especially among the battleground states. I think it was nearly 20 points that they swung towards Trump. These were voters that we were targeting significantly in 2020, especially in the battleground states, in the suburbs, especially college-educated voters. And these voters lean Democratic significantly. Um, and these voters swung back towards Biden by nearly 15 points. Um, and I think that if you're going to be running 
in an election as a third party candidate, you're going to siphon off a pretty significant number of these voters. If they're Joe Biden and Donald Trump are running again, um, they're going to have high on high disapproval ratings. Cheney would definitely siphon off college educated women. Um, a lot of the pro-democracy independent independent voters, um, a lot of the former Republicans, a lot of moderate Republicans, moderate Republic, moderate voters are the largest coalition. Most voters do not identify as conservative or liberal. Most voters identify as moderate. Um, so those are just a couple of things. And, you know, going into a couple, just one example, there's a county in Michigan just pulling out that we targeted, Kent County, um, was a Republican bastion of votes. This county had went for about 6.5% for third-party candidates in 2016. Um, that changed. It was about 1%, a little over 1% of third-party can- voters went for third-party candidates. Um, 15,000 votes fewer went for uh, a third-party candidate between 2016 and 2020. And I think across the board, if you look at the data, every single battleground state that we targeted, save for Florida, actually, ironically enough, which was a state that I had a lot of high hopes for um, in 2020, those third-party votes went overwhelmingly towards Joe Biden and not Donald Trump, save for Florida. So those are just a couple of the reasons. But I do think uh, if Cheney, like we've we talked about earlier, if Cheney was to do any sort of independent run, um, it would be really fascinating to see what she could do in like a lesser risk, risky state like Florida, um, where I don't, I agree with you. I think that it's out of Democrats' hands, uh, out of their capability of winning at this point. So those are just a couple of thoughts of mine, but I'd be curious to see what you think if, you know, she makes this run in the primary and then were to just endorse Joe Biden. But I, I think, I think it's not worth giving up on the Republican party completely, even though the vast majority of Republican voters are extremely conservative and identify as more conservative. Um, yeah. So, First of all, thanks, Lucas, for that. I, I, I hit the invite to speak button. So if you accept that, it'll actually put you up on, on stage and you can mute on and off and I, w- I won't bug you too much. But if anybody does have questions of Lucas too, he, he can add a lot. But this is a great conversation and this, this is why I think the Lincoln Project w- was as we were able to, to strategically pull out what we were able to do. Lucas is, is a young man, progressive. Um, in his you know mid early twenties, he was just out of out of college. Um, had, had done pragmatic a couple of fresh progressive here. I'm sorry, a pragmatic progressive. <laughs> uh, I'm kind of this old Republican hand from the old old, old school you know old school Rhino. Uh, Steve Bannon called me, um, and and you know this is these are the debates you have in a campaign. Is you go over these 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 different strategic approaches and the data. And and I think Lucas will probably tell you there were times where I would say, yeah, you guys are right. That I, I I'm not I was wrong. I'm not seeing it that way. Maybe maybe I didn't say that, but I felt like I was listening. Um, and getting that kind of the, getting that kind of feedback is very um, important. But that's usually the teams that you want to assemble 
when you're developing the strategy is you surround yourself with people who don't see the world the way that you do and see if you can't come to some good conclusions. And when you do, you're usually hitting, hitting a sweet spot. So, um, so Lucas, I think, made a very compelling case. And like I said, I, I'm not saying that I'm dug in 100% on this. I'm kind of like 60, 40, maybe 55, 45, she should get in. Um, I think that we both see value of her getting in and challenging him in the Republican primary and just using the opportunity and the platform and the resources to kind of rip the bark off of him at every opportunity. Uh, my worry is she could be marginalized by the time we got to convention and she will no longer be a helpful tool. She will simply be, um, you know, kind of this, you know, pissed off anti-Trumper like the rest of us and not be able to build a constituency. I, I do believe, I do believe that there would be value in her running as an independent conservative because she would be speaking directly yeah, to the yeah. base. She, she wouldn't be speaking to moderate Democrats. She wouldn't be speaking even to conservative leading independents. Um, she'd be speaking to the most conservative elements of the Republican Party. That's It's like Ralph Nader or Jill Stein in the Green Party. They're, they're speaking to very progressive elements of the political spectrum. She, the, you know, Liz Cheney is a conservative's conservative. <laughs> like she's there's no there's no issues where she really hedges on, except maybe marriage equality at this point. And even that issue, the Republican Party is you know is is split fifty fifty on. So um, yeah, yeah. No. I don't know. And look, and, my, and I also I, I also reserve the right to change my opinion. You know, <laughs> in in, no, in the coming weeks and or months. Appreciating most about just for all the listeners, Mike Madrid is. One of the best bosses that one could ever have. Ah. That he would always take in these opinions, even if you disagree with them, and would be open to changing your mind, which I think is very rare in this industry. Um, so do not do not think that he won't change at all. I think that he softened up a bit, but um, <laughs> no, I appreciate I you, brother. I, I love you for that. You know that, and I, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I honestly am not paying you for that. Um, so, <laughs> listeners, there's no money involved here. <laughs> no, just just hugs and being called Mikey G every now yeah. and then. That's what. <laughs> uh, but I will say, just you know, thirty around thirty eight percent of Republicans don't think that Trump should run for a second term, and I do think that's that's a sizable amount, and. Um, you know, Liz Cheney could honestly mount a very competitive run. I don't know if that's where the party is these days, though. Um, but there's also a very sizable number of Democrat Democratic voters who say that Biden shouldn't run for a second term. I think it's around 40 percent of Democrats don't think that he should run for a second term either. Um, yeah. So it is substantial. Both bases really are not super enthusiastic about their party's leaders running right now. Um, was going to say one other thing, but I totally lost what that was. Um, That's right. Are, are there any other questions that people want to jump in and ask either Lucas or I regarding uh, the midterms generally or the, or the Liz Cheney strategy? Got a good opportunity with, and we've got a big, big group here, uh, by the way. I think we've got 74, 75 people. So there's got to be some questions Lucas, if you could, oh. why don't you? I, I, I hit the invite speaker thing up there. Is there a way for you to accept that, and you can kind of come up on stage? Yeah. 
totally. Don't you, um, don't you do that? What I was, there you go. The last thing I was going to say really quick was, um, you know, they're in the polling industry, there are definitely ways to test out and actually narrow down it with a huge sample. And I'm, you know you're familiar with that you could run an experiment and find out, okay, do these voters identify college-educated white voters, moderate voters, and swing voters that will be, you know, we can get their 2016 voter, uh, vote history and their 2020 vote history and find out before even running, is there a viable candidacy? And I think that that could be something that Cheney's group or outside groups would be interested in looking towards. I happen to think that the data would show that a lot of 2016 third party voters went to went to Biden and mm-hmm. would probably end up wanting to vote for Cheney. But that's that's just me. Let's, you know, let's 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 talk offline about that, because I think you're yeah. right. I know that technology exists and I think we would be a perfect um, we could put together the perfect team to kind of examine that. So let's let's talk about that offline, because I love that. Love that idea. Annika, you, question yeah, uh, yeah. from the audience. Yeah, what, what you got for us? So, Mike, are you saying that Cheney is actually targeting the most conservative people that Biden or whoever is impossible to win? So if, if she strategically just target those ultra-conservative but not Trump is not Trump, Trump is that's- that's exactly right. That's my argument. Is is if she was more if she was more centrist, like if she was like a Romney type or you know a McCain type Republican yep. as they were as they existed, I would have a different opinion about this okay. because then then I think that Lucas's argument makes more sense, makes, which okay. is which is you could lose Democrats to that candidate, you could lose conservative leaning independents, you could even lose Republicans. Uh, who would otherwise defect going to this candidate when Biden needs those votes, right? That two swing concept, that two vote swing concept that I mentioned is, is what Lucas is saying is it's not just that the voters, the Republicans won't vote for Trump. What he's saying is you also need them to vote for the Democrat. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's right. But the, that voter, that Lincoln Project voter is mm-hmm. the college educated Republican woman who is overwhelmingly pro-choice who supports marriage equality, who doesn't like the cultural conservatism of the party. That's not Liz Cheney. <laughs> Liz Cheney is fire-breathing, right-wing, hardcore, you know, GOP rock-ribbed. She's, mm-hmm. she's, she's going to be talking to those people in counties that we call deep MAGA counties. That she's not going to be getting, you know, she, she's not speaking to people who have an uneasy relationship with the party. Liz Cheney's talking to people who are saying, no, damn it, I want my voice back and I don't want this party run by an anti-constitutionalist, a big government spender who raised taxes, who raised tariffs, who has weakened the American presence in the world by undermining NATO and supporting Russia. Like, I, that's, I, that's a different voter. That's a different voter. Okay, and so it's not, I, okay. So it's not like and, Lincoln Project where he's trying to target the the one that can vote to the Yeah, uh, this is this is a different voter. These are not Lincoln Project voters. I guarantee you in 2020 Liz Cheney was not a fan of the Lincoln Project. I think she's probably, you know, <laughs> thinking how, how how do we work with some of these guys now going forward? But she was not she was not somebody who was a big fan of the Lincoln Project. Okay. No. So actually her running is just to sacrifice herself to save yes. the okay. country. Yeah. Okay. Country. And she and she and she has said as much. 
She said as much. She's, 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 she knows that this could come at great cost to her personally and professionally, and that's a sacrifice she's willing to make for the country. Okay. And that's why I think it's so noble. But yeah, that's exactly right. Okay, Good question. All right, thank you. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with that entirely. I do think that you just look at what we've been going through in the primary election, this primary season, seeing how many of these candidates, these Republicans who voted for impeachment in the House have lost. And, you know, I, I, I don't know if those voters that we called the Lincoln Project voters um, that we peeled off, I don't know if, like, their top issue was democracy. Democracy is on the ballot. Democracy is what we're fighting for. You know, you have to vote against the extreme here because we will lose our democracy and I fervently believe that that will be on the ballot again in 24, but um, I don't know if Liz Cheney appeals to the conservative policy end as much, and just given how she did lose her primary last night, especially in the conservative parts of her, her state, so I think it would be really interesting and it goes into the deep MAGA play that we, we tried, and um, interesting data out of that, but y'all will find out about it um, soon enough, but yeah, that's just my two cents. Uh, no, I, I think that's a, a great perspective. I, I see it a little bit differently, but that's, that's where the value of that's these discussions okay. come in. Yeah. Renee unmute. Let's hear the question. Thanks for coming back up. Renee, Renee, you got your mute button on the whole audience is waiting breathlessly for your question. Oh, there you are. Okay, <laughs> I have a very quick, but very selfish question. Yeah, um, I'm looking at the North Carolina Senate race, and these polls are all over the place. Um, some have Beasley up by six. Some have her neck and neck by point three. Um, and I have no idea how reputable any of these people are. But all I can find is in the Charlotte Observer. Um, so if you could like give me some idea of where we're at as far as that's concerned, and I don't care if you like drop it in a tweet or whatever. Um, but that's just one of those seats that we've been working really hard for down here. And mm-hmm. um, I would really appreciate some feedback and, and, you know, try to get a gauge on where we really are. Boy, I wish we had Zach here. Zach is our political <laughs> director, and he's from North Carolina. Um, was he the bot hunter? What was that? He did, he, was, um, he did a bunch of bot hunting, I think. Yeah, yeah. He was our troll hunter. Yeah, yeah. That's Zach. Yeah, Zach is a, Zach is a North Carolina legend. He's, he's, uh, he actually introduced Lucas and I. He brought Lucas onto the project. He was my political uh, director, and he's, he's eternally optimistic about all things political, which is why I just love his energy. I, I will have him on. Maybe we ought to get the gang back together, Lucas, and we'll bring Zach on because he'd be perfect for this, this question. Yeah, yeah. Let me just say this about North Carolina, and then I don't know if you've looked at North Carolina, but you might be able to answer it a little bit better. North Carolina on paper should be more Democrat than it is. Agreed. Right? Agreed. Obama carried this state. And let, me, let me tell you exactly why. And we took we not only took a long, 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 deep look at North Carolina at the Lincoln Project. We, we, we were spending millions of dollars in a very smart tactical program. And we actually um, are polling and our analytic work was showing about three weeks out that we were not going to win, that we mm-hmm. were not moving the needle enough. And so what we did is we took the budget out of North Carolina and we went into Georgia because our data was saying we could win Georgia. 
And as much as I hated leaving North Carolina because I really wanted to put that one in the win column, the fact that we were watching it as close as we were probably was the reason that we won Georgia because it gave us enough time to spend the money to move Gwinnett County into Cobb County. And, um, and most of the money that we spent there was in, in the collared counties around Atlanta, which, which is, um, which, which were the numbers that moved. But let me, let me not, I'll, I'll, I could talk about Georgia all day long too, but North Carolina is basically a third white non-college educated, a third white college educated and a third African American. That and and the thing about North Carolina is it's also like the rightward end geographically of the top of the Sun Belt, and North Carolina the economies that are there are like finance and biotech and high tech, and the workforce that's moving there is increasingly college educated, and on paper, damn, if North Carolina should be a blue state. But the problem there is there's just too many white college-educated voters voting like white non-college-educated voters. And, and it's just – it's frustrating because it's like you did it You did it in 2008. Like you can do it. You can, you can move on. You can meet, be, move forward. But since then, it slid back and it just met all of the metrics that we were looking at when we were, when we were doing the targeting for the Lincoln Project and – we um we spent we were spending millions there and then we were seated of course with a with a, a senate race too which limited us because it was so overbought we couldn't we couldn't punch through uh, with our you know handful of millions because they were spending hundreds of millions of dollars but I do believe if we had had five to eight million more dollars committed into North Carolina I think we, we could have put that state into play. Um, I, I'm not looking at it terribly closely right now, but I will after this, and I'll tweet some stuff out about it. Maybe the next couple of days, if I can get a break from this campaign down here in South America. But Lucas, are you looking at are you looking at North Carolina? You know, I'm I'm not really looking at North Carolina too closely, <laughs> despite all of the uh, connections I have with people from North Carolina. And I I say it to say I don't know if I'll ever figure out North Carolina politics. Um, you know, North Carolina has an R plus three partisan lean, and it's the same as Georgia, um, ranked by the rated by the Cook Political. Um, and I'm I'm there with you. We we really did shoot our shot with North Carolina in 2020, and the re um, reassessment and realignment of our resources was really, in hindsight, a good call. But you know, I just I I struggle to find where those college-educated white voters are that can make up for that gap. Of, I know exactly um, where they are. <laughs> no, I mean, can, North Carolina, yeah, exactly. like, geographically, it's not hard to figure out. And one of the things about our population is a large percentage of it are northern people who have migrated for a lower mm-hmm. cost of living. Right. Um, you know, we have tons of those people here. Um, you know, and the majority of our Democratic voters are concentrated in the major cities, which is why they have done a a job on our district map so many times and it's been litigated so many times. Um, so, you know, that has put us at a disadvantage mm-hmm. when it comes to, you know, the house. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know if it's just, if it's just people having, you know, pardon my French, but zero fucks to give and just not voting or, or what's going on because 
I'm perplexed with the people that I, I are around me all the time versus how elections turn out here. Yeah. Um, there's a huge disparity there. Yeah. You know, I, I was going to say, I think that there, I think it's about 10% less black voters in North Carolina than Georgia. And you, I just don't know if there are college educated white voters in the suburbs to make up for that. Um, and I think just looking at, you know, if this was 2018 blue wave year, um, Sherry Beasley is exactly the kind of candidate that I would want running in North Carolina to take mm-hmm. the Senate seat. Um, definitely turning out black voters and definitely turning out voters, the Democratic base, and then being able to make the persuasion case for those swing voters that we targeted. Um, but just looking at the polling right now, it's very, very sparse and I would not put much, much stock into it. Yeah. I made the mistake of just following the polling way too closely. And I always try to give the Republican at least just five points just to just to have set my expectations so low and assume just because what we're seeing, especially this cycle, um, is the non-response bias. And I think that's changed a little bit after the Dobbs decision. Um, there's a lot more Democrats, a lot more activated Democrats answering the phones now. I think that's what we're seeing a lot of. Um, but, you know, even a couple points more, I'm not sure it's going to be able to push it over the line for for North Carolina. But not to say never give up hope. I would be working my butt off for the next 80 days. Yeah. Um, so keep at it. And what we'll do is this. We'll bring uh, we'll bring Zach on to uh, one of the shows in the coming weeks and we'll do some deeper dives into the states. Like I said, as we get closer, um, I, I know people are going to be looking at more and more at specific house races and specific Senate and gubernatorial races. And I'll bring experts on who have a real feel for the ground and can talk to you block by block about that stuff. Um, Zach would have loved this discussion. We'll have to let him know, but Renee, thanks for asking the question. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mike. I appreciate you, Lucas. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Hey, we're an hour, we're an hour and a half deep into this and we've got a great audience, uh, today. We're going to have to cut it short because it is going a little bit long. Um, but thank you all so much, Lucas, especially for you for joining us on a whim here. I appreciate it. I appreciate the debate. Love your brain on this stuff. I think it was a great add to the discussion. Thank you everybody for sharing, uh, what's happening here on mic drop. If you could do so afterwards, it would help us move up a little bit in the rankings. It gives us a little bit more opportunity to have these discussions more frequently. I love all of you guys. Hang in there from Brazil. I'll be back stateside by the next time we do this. Uh, Send your suggestions on what you want tackled on Mic Drop, and we will talk to you next Wednesday. Yeah, back soon, Mike. Love you.